Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today we're joined by Dr. Serena Eisenberg, who's a newly appointed scientist in the uh, Lunenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute at Sinai Health System, and also works as a researcher at the Tammy Lettner Center for Palliative Care. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here today. Well, I'm really pleased to see that we now are building capacity for palliative care research at the Sinai Health System. Can you start by telling me a little bit about yourself, about how you got involved in palliative care research or what your academic background is? For sure. Well, my interest in palliative care started actually from my own family experiences with palliative care. When I was 16, my grandfather was hospitalized for a heart attack. At the time, we found out he had pancreatic cancer upon admission and then was transferred into the palliative care unit at North York General Hospital in Toronto. I was relatively young then and didn't quite understand the care he was receiving. My my understanding was that he was receiving this care uh, upon his death and that they were making him comfortable. Later that year, my uncle was diagnosed with stage four cancer as well and was receiving care at home. I didn't really understand how he was getting a doctor at home and it was only years later that I realized it was actually one of my colleagues at Tammy Latner who had been providing care to him. So that initially piqued my interest, and I think a lot of people don't get exposed to palliative care at a young age. And fast forward several years later, and I'm working as a management consultant at Deloitte doing health services consulting in Toronto and got engaged in a project related to palliative care. And it was then that I began to understand that palliative care is not limited to end-of-life care. It can also include care earlier in a disease trajectory that can help people to both manage their symptoms and be comfortable. And so from there, I, I started to get more and more interested in what palliative care could look like. And during the project I was doing at Deloitte, we consulted with a number of health system leaders from across Ontario, uh, as well as clinicians, and they were talking about the, the shifting face of palliative care in light of the aging demographics in the country. And I realized that there was a great opportunity to do more research in this field, both to improve access to palliative care as well as the quality of palliative care. And so your experience is kind of parallel to mine because my first experience with a loved one dying was my grandfather, mm -hmm. uh, similarly, as a young person. But they didn't have palliative care in those days, and his death was not a particularly pleasant one. It sounds like your experiences with palliative care, I mean, it's never a, a warm or welcome thing to have a loved one die, but it sounds like they were managed very well if it piqued your interest, or was it because you saw deficits in palliative care that you went in that direction? No, I, I would say they were managed well. In the case of my grandfather, I only wish that we had known mm. um, about the cancer earlier, and I wish that he had been introduced into palliative care at an earlier stage in his illness. That being said, I was extremely happy with the care my uncle and grandfather received. And part of what piqued my interest back then and then was reignited as a consultant was thinking through, you know, the privilege that my family members had to be connected into yes. the healthcare system and referred to palliative care. Yeah. And that privilege, although, you know, we continue to talk about a universal healthcare system in our country, the reality is the referrals to palliative care are among clinicians who are aware of it or among patients and caregivers who have the know, the wherewithal and knowledge to ask for it. Or where those services are extant. So oh. for example, when I was a rural family physician, 
we did all the palliative care because there wasn't any palliative care consulting service. We'd have somebody we could call at the referral center if we had a difficult problem. But the point was there was no palliative care team in our area whatsoever. We were it. Mm-hmm, for sure. And, you know, we're fortunate in Toronto that there are a number of palliative care programs at various hospitals, as well as the program that I work within, which provides home-based services. But certainly other cities in the country, and especially r- rural areas, don't have access. So this kind of interest that started at a young age continued through to when I was a consultant, and then I left consulting to go do my PhD. And I studied public health at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And most of my research at Hopkins focused on palliative care from a number of different methodological considerations um, and in different settings. So I can't help but be struck. Quite remarkable. So two questions. One, how did you become a consultant at What was the process that led you into a consultancy life? Well, to complicate it further, my first two degrees were in English literature. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So now we're getting into the interesting stuff. Okay. I think I'm an intellectually curious person. And when I started my undergraduate degree at McGill, I studied literature. I fell in love with the idea of using literature as a way to advance political means and understanding how political movements influence literature. And while I was doing that at McGill, I was actively involved in extracurriculars related to healthcare. So I did a lot around improving access to needle exchange programs, a lot of work around advocating for a safe injection site in Montreal. I was also engaged in advocacy around what was then called the Canada's Access to Medicines Regime, so getting Canadian um, manufactured drugs to developing countries. And so this was all on the periphery. In my fourth year at McGill, I was interviewing for a scholarship, and in that meeting, I was applying to study at Oxford in literature, and the interviewer said, you know, looking at your CV, you're doing all this stuff related to health. Why aren't you in public health? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But he was the first person to ask that, and I realized I didn't have an answer. But I was already on this trajectory where I'd applied to graduate programs in literature, and then I went on to do my master's at Queen's um, in literature. And fortunately, Queens at the time, I'm not sure if they still do, allowed you to take one course outside of your department. So I took it in a course in health services and policy applications and realized I was so much more excited about my homework in that class, my readings in that class. I got a job doing research uh, related to working with patients with HIV AIDS and who are currently or previously using injection drugs and then kind of investigating the relationship to homelessness and access to health care. And from there, I, you know, I had this research job that, you know, it was a few months, it ended, I came back to Toronto, which is home for me and was looking for work. And it was very hard to sell myself to health researchers to hire me, right. given my humanities background, I was very determined to get into healthcare. And a couple of individuals that I knew had gone into consulting and told me that you could get into consulting without necessarily that background. But if you showed the drive and interest, then it could work. And I went through the consulting interview process, which is an exhausting process and, uh, you know, was competing against people from business school and things like that. And then I ended up in management consulting. And that was a really, really wonderful experience because it was a crash course in all the facets of healthcare across Ontario. We worked with hospitals, ministry, local health integration networks that what were then called the community care access centers, and really just got exposed to so many components of how healthcare works in this province and and also across the country, and what really were the areas that needed to be improved upon and addressed. 
So like yourself, I come from a humanities background. Mm -hmm. So this is a question I wasn't thinking of asking before we started our conversation. But how do you think your humanities education prepared you for that type of work? For consulting work yeah. or public health research? Well, we'll start with consulting and then yeah. to, to both. Speak to both. Yeah. In both situations, the critical thinking training that I got in humanities was so helpful to review large quantities of information, distill it, synthesize it, find out what is most relevant in that large body of literature. And then also, certainly the writing skills cannot be ignored. You know, it was so helpful. And I hated sometimes writing those essays, but those skills have come in extremely handy. And also being able to think about the world and think about problems from different perspectives. It was often actually a debate I would have with some of my good friends at Hopkins because most of my colleagues and peers there were from a more classical science background yes. or were physicians or nurses who then went in to do a master's or PhD in public health. And they would often say, you know, this notion that individuals with a science background have better understanding of the truth or a better ability to grasp knowledge. And I would always debate that. No, actually, in the humanities, you're... Well, it's patently untrue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it was often something I would advocate for. But yeah. I also appreciate in today's society, there's a push to do undergraduate degrees that are much more oriented to a clear profession. And I was lucky that I got scholarships to do my undergrad in English literature. But it is a field that doesn't necessarily completely translate to a job. So I can appreciate people who don't go into it and yeah. why. Yes, yeah, so, well, I got the same thing when I was doing my uh, graduate work in philosophy. The grad coordinator used to have what he called the talk. And the talk was to any incoming graduate student. I was like, you know, there's no jobs in philosophy. I said, I know, but there's really good skills in philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. It's the critical thinking. It's the ability to read and write and to read critically mm -hmm. and to write with a certain clarity and rigor. So then you find yourself at Hopkins, and uh, did you have to take like quantitative epidemiology and all of that stuff? Tell me a bit about that transition. Absolutely. Uh, in order to be accredited as a public health school, students have to take biostatistics and epidemiology. So, you know, it was, I think I had a bit more of a learning curve than some of my peers, but I was able to do well in it. I went on to take a number of advanced statistical courses, and I really enjoyed it. I love learning, and I love the ability to grasp new concepts and work with smart people who can inspire me and motivate me to, to do that work. So, you know, the first year was definitely a challenge in adjusting to that kind of work environment. But once I got into, you know, the groove of things, it, it went relatively smoothly and I was able to finish my PhD in a relatively short period of time. Yeah. And now you're a scientist. Who'd have thought when you started your first year undergrad as an aspiring literature Mm -hmm. student that now you're graduated with a PhD in public health. So tell me a little bit about your thesis work that you did at Hopkins. Yeah, sure. So um, my dissertation was, like, as we say, nested within uh, clinical trials. So we developed an advanced care planning video for patients undergoing major surgery uh, with advanced cancer. And we were testing the video in surgical oncology clinics and looking at how the video impacted the way patients and caregivers communicated with the patient's surgical oncologists in the visit before surgery. So my focus was what was the role that caregivers served in these conversations and looking at how caregivers, when they were present versus absent, might impact the way these discussions went in terms of the patient-centeredness of the discussion, uh, what questions were asked, the 
frequency at which the patient talked. And so that was a quantitative way to look at communication using a system called the Rotor Interaction Analysis System. And because my dissertation had three papers, that was one paper. Another one was a qualitative study looking at the way decision-making happened in those visits. So four visits organically, actually, patients have a decision, what we called a disruption, where the patient had to rethink whether or not to proceed with the surgery that was scheduled the following week. And then the third paper was focusing on the human-centered design process that we use to develop the video um, itself and how we engage patients, caregivers, surgeons, and other stakeholders um, in a two-year process to create that video. I also did a lot of work at Hopkins around the cost-effectiveness and cost savings of the inpatient palliative care program there, which included a palliative care unit and inpatient consult service. I did work also around the quality improvement measures uh, involved in palliative care. What are the best ways to assess patients' need for palliative care and change in outcomes in palliative care? And then I did some work around policy as well, but mostly U.S.-based palliative care policy. So those are kind of threads that I'm hoping to weave into what I'm doing here. Very clearly, the work you did in your graduate and your doctoral thesis are ideally suited for the kind of work that I think you're hoping to do here at Sinai Health System. Oh, definitely. So tell us about your research. What are you interested in doing here at Sinai Health System with the Tammy Latner Center? Yeah, so I've, I've been with the Tammy Latner Center for four months now, and we're starting to think of getting a number of projects off the ground. Overall, the work that I'm doing is going to be focusing on questions of access and quality of palliative care. And I'll be doing work both within our healthcare system, being Sinai Health System, as well as collaborating with people from other institutions and hopefully um, outside of Ontario as well. So some of the work I'll be doing is looking at the costs and outcomes of home-based palliative care across Ontario and partnering with Dr. Amy Sue and Dr. Peter Tess-Saprutro um, at the University of Ottawa. I'll be doing some work around comparing the way we think about assessing the quality of palliative care studies. And that's a project I'll be doing with Dr. Camilla Zimmerman over at um, University Health Network. And I'm also hoping to get off the ground a couple of projects with some of my colleagues at Sinai related to investigating the what we do when we do on-call after-hours visits. Uh, we know that it's such an important component of home-based palliative care for patients and caregivers, knowing that a physician is only a page away. So going back through our electronic medical records and seeing what actually happens in those visits. I'm also hoping to do some work in better supporting caregivers of patients who receive palliative care. It's an area that has started to get some interest, but I think there's a lot more that we can do to better improve the quality of life that caregivers experience as their loved ones are going through this um, trajectory. And then another area that I'm extremely passionate about and drawing on my initial focus on kind of a more social justice lens on health is really bringing in the social determinants of health and thinking about access in terms of marginalized groups in palliative care. So there's a lot of areas that I'm hoping to start to focus in on. It's no short list by any way, any means, but I'm really excited to have the opportunity to study our program and also collaborate with other people and think through some of these problems. Another area too is most of the palliative care research to date has really focused on cancer care. And there's a lot of historical reasons for that, one being funding mechanisms were stronger for cancer care. For a long time, there was just an understanding that palliative care most aligned with the cancer disease trajectory. So 
hoping to do work around non-cancer populations. And indeed, our services are more and more every year incorporating patients who do not have cancer but are receiving palliative care. And certainly that ties in with your interest in complexity. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was going to say that's uh, one of the horizons of interest that I've had for some considerable time is how you adapt what I think are the uh, strongest and best elements of a palliative care approach because it's kind of um, a way of thinking as much as it is a series of techniques Mm -hmm. and services and how we bring that into dealing with very complex, older, frailer adults, not even just older. Some of them are, uh, you know, chronologically young, but biologically old. And I Mm -hmm. think the need to embrace a palliative approach would be a really important way forward. So let's say I had all the resources in the world and was able to fund a study for you, and you had no constraints in terms of money or time, what questions would you like to pursue? You kind of tipped your hat a little bit towards some of those things, but do you want to explain a little further if you had the grand vision what you would be able to do? Well, certainly it would be a palliative care study being my field of interest, but I would love to be able to do a multi-site trial looking at following patients as they move through the palliative care system and across different settings. So across home care, inpatient consult service, dedicated palliative care inpatient units, outpatient consult services, and kind of see how different components of care and different models of palliative care change patient-reported outcomes as well as some of the more health utilization outcomes that we can glean from health service usage and the electronic medical record. I'd love in that study to also be able to follow caregivers to see what kind of outcomes they're experiencing and what interventions are working for them. So, you know, long, long long-term goals would be to do some kind of multi-site trial testing palliative care intervention and supports for both patients and their caregivers and collecting a lot of data and ideally linking that data to some of our administrative databases in Ontario to be able to really gauge how these patients are using the healthcare system and what impact palliative care may be making on their usage. Yeah, I think that sort of study is actually achievable and mm-hmm. you should be able to get funded to do that. <laughs> and, <you. laughs> and I think we have a system that's set up to facilitate that. So just to drill down on that just a little bit more, The patient-oriented measures, what sort of things are you envisioning there? Yeah, so when we say patient-reported outcomes, it's sort of information that the patient would complete. So a patient assessing his or her own symptoms, so pain, fatigue, nausea, patients reporting on their quality of life, which are, there's a number of different scales that we use to assess quality of life, whether other outcomes would include things like the quality of care that the patient is receiving, patient's perception of satisfaction with the care provided by different healthcare professionals, be it physicians, nurses, personal support workers, and then also having similar metrics being completed by the caregivers as well. So you can see how they align because often they're discordant rather than concordant, and that's one of the problems in the delivery of care. For sure. And, uh, you know, in some of the studies we did at Hopkins, we, for example, had a satisfaction measure after a patient's visit with their surgical oncologist. And we ran, you know, correlation tests to see whether there was agreement between the patient's rating of satisfaction and the caregiver's rating of satisfaction and then the oncologist's rating of satisfaction. And they were pretty much in agreement. We were kind of surprised by it. But some of the challenges when you talk about satisfaction is it tends to be very positively skewed. Mm -hmm. 
and you know some literature suggests that you know patients and caregivers are hesitant to indicate a lack of satisfaction yes. with the care they receive yes. even if we tell them you know we're not going to be giving that information back to their provider they you know they don't want to have any indication of dissatisfaction excellent well serena you obviously have a clear vision and passion I think Sinai Health System and the Tammy Lettner Center are fortunate that you're with us. And I'm just so pleased to see that uh, we're developing capacity for research both within Sinai, but particularly within palliative care, which I think is really one of the most important facets of our health system. Thank you so much for taking time out and coming to speak with me today. It's been a great privilege and pleasure. Thank you so much. So wonderful to be here. 